The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and we're live. Wow, that was really fast. I hit the button bed and it immediately turned from blue to red. Anyways, uh, and we're live. It is Wednesday, November 17th, 5.01 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and Ben is the monologue. Ben. So I uh, want to announce an important fact that I know that a bunch of you have been wondering about, um, which is the question of whether Daniel Burge actually exists or not. Um, now, let's review the state of the evidence um, <laughs> prior to today. Um, he has been on In Lieu of Fun uh, religiously and asks incredibly good short questions uh, that tends to favor existence. He appears on the Discord channel. Um, he um, uh, uh, has had a couple bylines on Washington Post op-eds. He has a Substack um, newsletter uh, thing. Yeah, and all of that tends to favor existence. Uh, on the <laughs> other side of the equation, it's there has, a bundle of sticks. I don't understand. Like there has been the fact that nobody has seen him outside of his native habitat. There has been no sighting of Daniel Burge outside of his chair. Very few, no sightings unbacklit, uh, and uh, no sightings. Uh, and very few outside of his camouflage with his couch. Until today, when the following happened. I want to show you an actual image. This There's so much that this it actually proves. Kind of fuzzy. I just want to say, like, it's not just fuzzy in this. It's fuzzy in the image that you texted me, which makes me think that it's photoshopped and that this is not a real no, thing that's happening. No, no, no. I am no, telling you, no, I, I am your... Daniel I am your affiant in this. I took this picture. It proves not merely that Daniel Burge actually exists, but that he has legs, oh my which God. was not previously known. Uh, it also proves that, in fact, uh, his torso is not his couch. Because I know some, sometimes in the, in the, when he appears on In Lieu of Fun, uh, he seems the head just seems to rise out of the couch. That is, in fact, not the case. Um, and uh, so we have, oh, one other thing that it proves, he drinks iced coffee. Um, uh, the following uh, I can now confirm with personal experience. Um, and I just want to say it was a pleasure to actually meet Daniel in person. We are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to meet Daniel Burge in person. Um, and, and to have um, Aaron Perzanowski on the show to talk about his new book. That's right. And he must think we're super weird now. Um, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, we warned him of this in the back, like before, in beforehand. So. Aaron, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Yeah. It is it is wonderful to be here. Um, the automatic timer on my lights in my office just went out. So yeah, um, go wave your arms. It like, happens to people. It's happened before on the show to people. You're not even the it's, first one. It's, it's so the sensor is blocked by a like sort of built-in wardrobe, and so um, I have to. I'm gonna have to like sneak off camera for just a second to get the lights back. But give me a second. No, no, do it. All right, that'll give me a chance to announce that whoever is responsible for sending me the this mysterious dog shirt that just uh, showed up, uh, please identify yourself because <laughs> I uh, there's yeah, no card. I think we're like really testing Aaron's like ability to like keep a straight face and like <laughs> we're breaking you down, Aaron. Uh, slowly, slowly. Um, <laughs> yes, 
someone sent Ben um, a, a new dog shirt, uh, so reveal yourself, whoever that was. Okay, on to more serious matters. Like, how I managed to somehow book the world expert in the right to repair on the same day that Apple announced fortuitously, maybe not so fortuitously, given your book. No, they knew um, it was com- they knew he was coming on the show, and they're just like, we're not letting that guy talk about us without an announcement today. And they, they <laughs> raced it forward. How'd you get them to do it, Aaron? Yeah. Um, you know, I take complete credit for the shift in uh, the, the policy of the world's, uh, you know, second or third most, most valuable company. Uh, that's, that is the power of academic writing. And everybody who says that, you know, I what mean, we legal scholars do... Cambridge University Press is no slouch, Aaron. Don't not don't, I mean, don't knock yourself. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 interesting to sort of see the news develop around this issue as I'm like waiting desperately for this manuscript that's been finished for months and months and months to make its way uh, out into the world. So you know, you've got this big announcement from Apple today. We've had announcements from Microsoft. We've had executive orders. We've had action from the FTC, some of which I like managed to cram into an epilogue. But, you know, eventually, like they got to they got to print books and you got to stop writing, uh, which is it's just it's a challenge. Yeah. So let's back up and kind of talk from like the beginning, kind of around the history of the right to repair. Um, And your background, just to introduce you to the audience, is an intellectual property. You're a property professor. You wrote um, a book with Kate Darling, who's also been on the show. Um, and you wrote a book with Jason Schultz, who is yet to be on the show, but you two should come back on because that is one of my favorite books. And I excerpt it for my property class. It's called The End of Ownership. Oh, it's, a, it's a tremendous, tremendous book um, that I think speaks to my students. Love it because I think it truly speaks to it's the, you know, it is. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's the end of people buying houses, buying couches, buying music, buying everything. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book um, that Jason Schultz at NYU and Aaron have written. Um, And now you have this solo authored piece on the right to repair, but what is the right to repair? Just for everyone who like doesn't doesn't know. Sure, so the basic idea behind the right to repair is that, you know, when people go out and they purchase devices, whether it's, you know, a kitchen appliance or your smartphone or your car or a piece of like agricultural uh, equipment, one of the things that we all expect to enjoy with respect to those purchases is the ability to fix it if something goes wrong. Um, And there are a lot of ways in which, uh, you know, device makers have attempted and and in many ways succeeded in preventing or discouraging those sorts of repairs. Um, You know, this isn't entirely new. This idea of sort of planned obsolescence has has been around, you know, since at the very least kind of the middle of the 20th century. But software introduces a whole bunch of new techniques and strategies that, that companies can use to make repair really difficult and to kind of tilt the balance towards you know replacing consumer goods rather than repairing them. So there's been this kind of legal movement um, and not just a legal movement, like a, a sort of grassroots movement um, to, to legislate, to push regulators, to um, try to recognize these, uh, these sorts of consumer rights. So you say that there is kind of like a, since the middle of the 20th century, do you think that there's something to do with like the development and the like ubiquity of plastics or any type of material of the development or the like? I'm just kind of curious, like what technologically in the manufacturing process changed such that people thought that goods were fungible enough and cheap enough to make that it made more sense to build and planned obsolescence and like less sense to build something that would last. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of of pieces to this, right? I mean, one part of the story is that like this term planned obsolescence grows out of the Great Depression and this idea that we have all of this manufacturing capacity sitting there idle and the problem is a lack of demand. And so the proposed solution was, well, let's just like round up all of the old things that we have, uh, right, and destroy them. 
And then people will have to buy new things, right? And if you have to buy new things, then we're going to go out and we're going to produce more. And that was I'm sort just of like a, FDR like coming in, like sw- like smashing my refrigerator, like and being like, "Too bad, get a new one." <laughs> so this was this was like the proposal, um, and you know, it wasn't coming from the administration, but the proposal was to have a sort of government enforcement mechanism where you would there would be an expiration date on consumer goods. And when that date hit, things would be rounded up and destroyed and you'd have to go buy new stuff. And, you know, the government, of course, like never imposed that rule, but manufacturers, I think, realized that they had a pretty clear business interest in selling more stuff, right? You make more money if you sell five toasters than if you sell one toaster. And so um, companies develop strategies that shorten the lifespan of these devices, um, that encourage people to replace things even if they didn't need to be repaired, right? So General Motors comes up with the brilliant idea of model years for cars, and you make slight aesthetic changes year to year so that, so that after three or four years, there's social pressure to like replace your car and get a new model, even if it still works perfectly well. Um, and we've seen that sort of strategy, you know, just sort of, you know, grow and develop in a whole bunch of, of new directions over the past, you know, 20 years or so. Um, I think also, you know, post-World War II, right, where there's all of this manufacturing capacity and a sense that, well, how do we keep these factories running? We can build more things than people need. So we have to, we have to manufacture demand um, you know, in addition to just sort of manufacturing the, the devices. When, sorry, go ahead, Ben. You're muted though. So I want to, how much of this is accelerated by the tendency in the software industry not to sell you things, but to license them, you know, and so like I don't know what part of my iPhone I actually own. Do I, I? I know I don't own the software that's on it. Um, I've clicked through licenses that entitle me to use it under a variety of circumstances that may or may not be true um, because I never read the click-through agreements like everybody else. Um, and similarly, there is a fair bit of, you know even hardware that companies at some point simply stop supporting in the ultimate expression of planned obsolescence. Um, uh, And so I'm curious how much of this is that they actually, you know, you don't own enough of the products that you buy anymore to really repair them even because they're actually uh, uh, they're in in some meaningful legal sense owned by other operators. So I think that's a really a really important point. So you know there's there's been historically kind of a line separating products and services. Uh, and that line I think is increasingly blurry today. A lot of consumers, when you buy your phone, they think of it as a product. It's a product that they own. It's a physical device that goes in their pocket. They carry it around with them. But that product is essentially useless without a whole connected sort of um, ecosystem of related services, services, right? You got to have connectivity, right? You've got to have software. You got to have software updates without those services, um, the device can't perform in the way that we expect it to, right? So part of what's happening is a, a shift in um, people's kind of relationships with these devices. More and more of the functionality is offloaded to, you know, some server somewhere that I'm in the dark again, uh, that, that um, hopefully uh, you can still see me. Yeah. Um, good, good. Um, so, you know, these, the functionality, it's kind of offloaded to, you know, these cloud servers somewhere. And 
there are aspects of functionality that are just not physically contained on the device anymore. So the example I use in the book to kind of describe this phenomenon is this um, social robot Jibo that got put out a few years ago. It's this, you know, little foot tall device and it will like interact with you and tell you jokes and talk to you. Um, but almost none of the functionality is actually contained within that plastic shell, right? If it doesn't have the ability to connect to uh, the servers that, that operate all of these uh, neat tricks that can do, the thing is just sort of an inanimate collection of hardware. Um, and so when the company that created it goes out of business, it starts to basically die in front of people's eyes. Um, and there's nothing you can do physically to fix that problem. So I think there's, there is some need for greater transparency here when it comes to um, distinguishing between the functionality that's built into the device locally and the functionality that is, you know, been sort of outsourced to, to some, some server somewhere. And I think we ought to try to think through the, 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 the idea of, uh, you know, incentives to localize functionality as much as, as we can from a consumer perspective, right? That makes you less dependent on this sort of tether that's connecting you back to the, the manufacturer. Yeah. So I think that this in part gets into like a kind of a, a much more academic and philosophical debate about what ownership means, which is something that obviously as property professors, like we both of us talk about in class and you talk about an end of ownership with Jason. Um, but that, but I, I kind of want to dig into that for a second, which is kind of like, as Ben points out, like you're licensing the software, you're licensing all of these things. But yes, you own, maybe you feel like you own the physical device. And I'd argue, I think a lot of people would argue, you would argue because it's tangible, because you have control over it, because you can put it in your pocket, because you paid money for it, like up front. And even though it's value is completely, it, it is completely valueless or very low value for its actual physical properties. It is its ability to network with other devices and like a greater like set of services that gives it, it give it its power. And so which part, so like in the hierarchy of those types of levels of ownership, like let's say the metal band around your like iPhone, the glass, like the functionality of the button, like, or, or of like the home screen button on the older models. We'll use the iPhone because you use it and like you talk about it a fair amount. And there's like, but like what in those versus the software versus the intangible does right to repair? Where does right to repair come in? Does it come in for both? And like, where do you see the future of right to repair being? Is it going to stay so firmly in a physical type of right to repair? Or do you think it's going to move more in society towards a software element? Yeah, this is an important question and a, a hard set of lines to draw. So I think primarily when people think about and talk about the right to repair, they're focused on the physical components of a device, right? You want to swap out the, the busted screen on your smartphone or you want to, um, you know, uh, you, you want to replace some, you know, uh, component of the engine of your car, whatever it is, right? There are physical pieces that we care about having control over. Um, part of the reason this question that you're asking is so tough is the software is oftentimes inseparable from the functionality of the hardware, right? So you think about the electronic control units in vehicles, right? From passenger cars to, um, John Deere tractors and the basic functionality of those components, right? Of your fuel injector, of your transmission, all of that is controlled now through software, right? There's a computer. This, this is part of the reason, right? We're having so many shortages in the supply chain is we don't have the chips that we need to yep. make cars run, right? Well, that to me is a pretty good argument for getting the chips out of the cars. Um, <laughs> You know, that, of course, there's like some functionality that you lose and, and there are important benefits of, of some of this sort of integration. But the software really is being used to leverage control over the hardware. Uh, and so it's really tough to disentangle that relationship. You've got to have control 
or access to software in order to do really basic things when it comes to repair, right? So John Deere, for example, has this um, system in place where if you go out and buy like uh, an authentic John Deere part and you install it exactly according to plan yourself on your John Deere tractor that you paid like a million dollars for, um, and you do everything right. Chips, by the way, or like all have chips. Oh, all over so. the place. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely, right? So you install a part and the part literally won't work until a technician from the local John Deere dealer comes out to your farm, attaches their laptop to your device and basically authenticates or initializes this part. Um, that kind of uh, dynamic, I think, makes the, the separation here really tricky. Now, there are things like, you know, pure kind of service dynamics, right? I don't think that we can say, um, you know, connecting to your wireless provider is a repair issue necessarily. So we got to draw a line somewhere. Um, but the design of these products make it, makes it increasingly tough to, to draw that line. Ben, you're muted. So help me out. When you talk about the right to repair, are you talking about making illegal such uh, manufacturer-imposed restrictions? Or are you talking about a more normative conception that, hey, if you buy a piece of frickin' hardware, you should have a certain amount of right to tinker with it and fix it yourself? Like, what's the, what's the parameters of the right that you're hypothesizing and what's the mechanism by which that right is operationalized? Yeah, that's that's a really important question because like the right to repair movement, which is, um, you know, I think largely responsible for the news that we saw with Apple today. There's been yeah. a group of people who've been working for years, putting pressure on all sorts of actors, putting pressure on device makers, putting pressure on legislatures, putting pressure on regulators and courts to try to move in this direction. And so the, the term I think is used in a lot of, um, in a lot of different ways that are all directed at the same goal, but are targeting different parts of the problem. So um, for the last few years, there's been a very targeted effort at passing what's called right to repair legislation in states across the country. I think last year there were 27 states uh, where these bills got introduced. None of them got passed. One did make it through the New York Senate. Um, I'm hopeful that this state legislative season, um, you know, kicking off in, in 2022, we'll actually see uh, one or more states pass this sort of uh, this sort of law. So what those right to repair bills do, and I think this is kind of the narrowest conception of what we mean by the right to repair, um, is that they mandate that device makers um, make available to consumers and to independent repair providers, um, replacement parts, uh, diagnostic software, manuals and other kinds of repair information that's necessary in order to make these sorts of repairs. Uh, so it would tell a company like Apple, for example, look, you refuse to sell anyone other than your authorized repair partners any component of an iPhone. You have to make those available on fair and reasonable terms uh, to any consumer or any independent repair shop that wants them. You've got to provide them the kind of information that they need to execute that repair. And not surprisingly, those bills are looking pretty promising this time. And so Apple decides, well, we'll go ahead and do that ourselves. So that that's, that's one conception of the right to repair. But when I talk about it, I mean something considerably more broad than that, that relies on a bunch of different areas of law, right? That, that looks at the way intellectual property law is applied in this space, that looks at the scope and availability of design patents, that looks at um, uh, uh, exemptions under Section 1201 of the DMCA. It looks at consumer law and talks about, um, you know, uh, warranty protections and when companies are entitled and when they're not to avoid a warranty um, that looks at antitrust law and thinks about issues around 
um, tying of parts and services, of refusals to deal, exclusive dealing. I think all of those um, bodies of law sort of enter into the broader conversation here. And ultimately, I think what the goal needs to be is recognizing both for the sake of consumers, but also because of the sort of massive environmental externalities at stake here, that we have a collective and individual interest in making sure that consumers have the ability uh, to keep their devices working after they, uh, after they purchase them. Um, tinkering, I think, is a related issue and, and one that I certainly have some sympathy for, uh, but I don't know that all of the same arguments play out there with quite the same force as they do when all we're trying to say is, look, I bought this thing, something broke, I ought to be able to, to restore this functionality. So this is like super interesting to me too, because there's, there is a level here that you just kind of talked about that I want to talk about more, which is like these, the John Deere registered repairman, right? Like the Maytag registered repairman um, versus like your garden variety general mechanics. And there's a question of like, I, I know that we we are both working on kind of issues of interoperability and interested in them in like various ways, but there's a question here of interoperability, which is like something that drove my parents to never buy, no pun intended, to never buy um, like German cars or, or like kind of other types of like, because there was such a, there was such a cost to repair because you had to go to a specific Volkswagen dealership or someone that was like a foreign car service repair shop. Um, That's not why my and family that was, never bought German cars. Okay, well, yes, <laughs> fair, Jesus. <laughs> anyway, like, I have a German car, <laughs> but you know, that's like just this Jew generation will buy German cars. Um, yes. Okay. I just was like, could have also said, okay, whatever. I could have said like Peugeot, but like, anyways, whatever. But the idea was that basically we didn't, that that was like my parent. Well, the, the idea was that you could, there was an everyman repair ability that was like kind of present in, in certain types of models of cars. And of course that's changed. Like it's not by, it's not by brand necessarily anymore. And a lot more has probably gone because of chips in the way of, kind of becoming like there there are these gatekeepers on repair um and i'm kind of interested what you think like the role of the internet is in all of this in the sense that it has brought repair to almost everyone the ability to understand and repair your own devices and look it up on youtube and figure out how to do it is something that like was was it completely elusive to a farmer in Iowa and their $100,000 John Deere tractor, um, you know, 20 years ago, um, and is much more available now. And so I, I'm, I'm just really curious kind of like what you think of it as like, it, how you think of this movement as kind of dovetailing with like a, a kind of a access to knowledge type of movement. So I don't think that it's a coincidence that these restrictions on repair in terms of hardware design, in terms of software locks, um, developed at the same time that information about repair is increasingly accessible, right? There's been a kind of effort to democratize repair. So we've got, um, you know, organizations like iFixit, right? iFixit. Uh, makes repair guides available for just like a staggering array of devices. You can go on their website and they will show you step-by-step step with photos exactly what you need to do. They will sell you the parts. They will sell you the tools that you need. And there's a whole bunch of people on YouTube that are doing similar sorts of, of work, right? They're providing these walkthroughs on, okay, how, you know, you have this model of toilet. Here's how you stop your toilet from running. You've got this particular brand of refrigerator. You know, here's how you deal with a compressor that's gone bad. Um, that information is, has made it easier for people to repair things themselves. Um, that eats into the margins of device makers in a couple of ways. One, it means people aren't as quick to go out and replace something. Uh, and second, it means they don't get the additional revenue stream that comes from providing repair services, right? You go talk to any car dealer 
around the United States, they will tell you they make more money on servicing cars than they do on selling new cars. Um, that's a huge piece of the, the economic puzzle for them. And so losing control oh. over repair is a big threat to a lot of companies' uh, bottom line. I mean, John Deere, you know, they see the repair service piece of their business as, you know, an opportunity for growth. They see this as a, a big revenue stream moving forward. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that the, the rise in accessibility has led to some pushback here. Although I think, you know, I think the causality runs in both directions. Part of the reason this community has become so vocal and committed is because they feel, and I think quite rightly, uh, like they're fighting against, you know, incredibly uh, powerful and, and well-resourced companies. Well, like the... But, but why isn't the solution to that from the company's point of view just to increase the number of features with non-user serviceable parts? So, you know, one thing I cannot fix myself, no matter how many videos I watch, is the computer that I'm working with right now or the microphone that I'm speaking into, right? These are- uh, What are you uh, saying? Cause of like nano, yes, because it's too small or like it would require too many specific tools. Um, so first of all, because there are uh, um, tools that I don't have and I'm unlikely to acquire the, some of the parts are actually too small to work with yourself, um, particularly parts on, I mean, you can swap out a microprocessor and put in a different chip, but you can't service the chip, right? You can, sure. there's things you can learn to do. And by the way, this is true. I, I'm somebody who lives near my cabin in the woods, who's a mechanic says this is increasingly true of cars too, that you, you know, you a lot of the parts are not user serviceable anymore. It seems to me if um, if John Deere wants to prevent people from servicing their own thing, why isn't the answer to that ever more refined product that is uh, just hard to do yourself rather than to make it like m make it contractually or uh, or technically impossible to do yourself, they win if you don't do it yourself, no matter how they get there, right? That's a great point. Yeah. So I, th I think you're right. And in reality, I think we're seeing both of those strategies play out simultaneously, right? Uh, you know, open up an iPhone and, and look at the components that are in there. Look at the way that they are designed. Um, devices get smaller and smaller every year, right? That's, you know, one of the the few, I think, compelling cases for, for uh, well, I don't want to say it's compelling. It is the argument that is presented for buying a new phone half the time is like, oh, it's like two millimeters thinner than it was before. And so that, that process of miniaturization, I do think has a big impact on repair. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of granularity with which devices can be repaired, I think is quite different than it was 50 years ago. So now you're much more likely to have to swap out sort of an entire module rather than replacing one specific part that has failed. Um, but even in scenarios where you could swap out one specific part, companies make it really tough to, to do that. So they're, they're pursuing both of those strategies simultaneously. Uh, here's, here's an example of this, right? So um, MacBooks um, have a, uh, a chip that sort of controls the, the charging process for the battery, right? And these, these chips are manufactured for Apple by a company called Intersil. They cost about $15, right, to produce. Um, except they have a contract with Intersil that says they're not allowed to sell that chip to anyone other than Apple. Apple is the only buyer of that particular, uh, that particular chip. And Apple doesn't sell it to anyone. They don't install it on anyone's computer. They use it in manufacturing. So if that chip goes bad, if you could get access to one, you could spend 15 bucks, pay somebody to install it. You're good to go. Instead, you have to get you know, a new motherboard for your laptop, which costs $1,500. Uh, 
And in reality, no one's going to do that either. They're just going to buy a new one. And yeah. so even when there is that opportunity to, to actually swap out a part, companies are, are pursuing strategies that, that make that really difficult. Yeah, I, I really love that point, which is that it's actually more costly to repair something than it is to just buy something entirely new. And I think that like it, it gets to the, the point that it's like, it seems very difficult absent regulatory regime. And this is something there's like, there's not, you, you pointed out in your tweet of the Apple news today, um, it, nothing like, you know, nothing like the, like the imminent threat of regulation to like make a company change its policy voluntarily. But without the imminent threat of regulation, um, there's no way, as you just, as Ben pointed out, as you point out, that we could have visibility into, into what the companies are doing to basically limit this level of kind of right to repair. And there's like in eight different ways their incentives are not aligned um, at the bottom line to ever serve it, to like ever address this or kind of like I mean, I think that in like a lot of my work, their incentives are aligned. And so that's actually one of the reasons I think that self-regulation might possibly have some type of like purchase, but like there are no aligned incentives here, like at all. And I think that that's actually, um, I think it's like a, a really important point. Um, I'm really curious if you're a tinkerer, like you yourself, and if so, on like what level are you like, do you, do you like, like, are you, do you fix things? Like what in like writing this book and like doing kind of this work, like what do you do? So less than I have in the past, right? In part because of a lot of these problems that we're talking about, right? Um, mm. Yeah, I fixed iPhones in the past. I had a broken screen and I was like, I'm not gonna pay somebody else to do this. I'll do it myself. Did it a few times. And now, you know, years have gone on and it's just more difficult to do than it than it was in the past. Um, you know, I've you know, worked on my own cars over the years, right? Um, partly just out of like a sense that like, I'm interested in figuring things out. I'm interested in, um, in seeing how things work. But I've kind of witnessed firsthand the like increasing difficulty, especially kind of in the electronic space of doing things on your own. Um, I, I tell a story in the book about, um, I had a, my laptop battery was dying as I was writing the book. And so I like did the math. Okay, you know, first I was like, all right, what, how difficult is it gonna be for me to replace the battery in my laptop? I've done that a million times in like the 90s and you know, 2000s. Um, then, so I went to iFixit and I looked up the instructions and I got to the part where it said I had to use a chemical solvent to dissolve the glue holding the battery to the aluminum case of my laptop. And I was like, I'm out, can't do it. Not not going that far, right? Like that's that's not yeah, for me. Yeah, like Ben, he's um, not gonna buy like nanotechnology tools to be able to fix the chip in his laptop. Like not gonna be soldering right, yeah. like with like 14 karat gold or like <laughs> and zinc. Like, yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, all right, well, what's, what's it going to cost me if Apple fixes this for me? And of course, like they'll fix it. They'll swap your battery out. But like the price difference between them replacing the battery and me just buying a new laptop was like $250 or something absurd. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm writing a book about the need to repair more devices and like mid paragraph, I replaced my laptop. Um, it's tough to navigate this space. Like even if you care about it, even if you're informed about it, um, it is it is a real challenge. Um, that is such a great example. Uh, I love that. Um, also, having like swapped a swapped a having to swap a device out often is like, yeah. I just I just there is a point. Like I also like fix, I am kind of a tinkerer and I love fixing things. And we never throw things like I don't know. I just kind of grew up in a very frugal household and like we never threw mm -hmm. things out. And like there was always like I like a like a workshop in the basement where things went to go get fixed and then never came back like literally and now like you fix cormorants yeah i know and, like uh sea yes, turtles I, I also rescue animals but no but seriously like come on did like if you grew like we i grew up in the suburbs in like western new york we had basement and there was like 
my dad's like kind of like tool room and like my my I will say that it was not gender specific my grandmother was like a huge kind of like woodworker and there was all of this stuff that I came up with but this room was just for like dead toaster ovens and broken toys of like various kinds electronic and not and like all types of kind of little things. And I just kind of wonder if people have those rooms anymore. And the answer to that, at least in New York, where people do not have the room for those rooms and that is like, no, they just throw it out. Like that's actually like a really weird thing that like I never have gotten used to in New York. It's just like the throw out culture because you don't have the room to store something that's broken. Um, and I, I just kind of, but I wonder if like overall the entire approach to even like having a room like that has like become like a very, like not a thing we do anymore because in the time in which I've grown up, that like, kind of need has changed. Do you think that that's, I mean, well, you're in Ohio, you kind of like, maybe you get it. Like, I don't know, do people, do people do that anymore? What do you think? So I think the the economic calculus has changed in like incredibly important ways. The prices for consumer devices are just like plummeting, like compared to like when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, um, everything is so much cheaper, right? The, the price that you can, you know, spend to go out and, and buy a brand new 60 inch, um, you know, flat screen TV changes the, the economics in a way that, um, from a purely kind of self-interested perspective, I understand why people make the choices that they do. Throw it out because one, there there are no, um, there are very few people that are still offering repair services for a lot of these devices, right? If you look at the like you know Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers for the number of people who worked in television repair in 1960 or 1970, and compare it to today, um, it's an industry that has just disappeared. And so repair prices go up and repair availability goes down and people just replace more and more things when, you know, often like if your TV doesn't work, um, you know, it's probably like a 39 cent part that has gone bad, right? It's not, um, you know, it's not some like massive expense, but there's nobody to do the work. The problem with that analysis is that it's not taking into account the externalities here, right? The fact that there is um, just like this crushing mountain of electronic waste that we produce every year and um, in terms of phones. Dragging and, out of the ground to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, the, like, yes. Rare earth minerals, man. So recycling is becoming more and more important in this space because like we're literally running low on so many of these materials, right? Like there's only so much to pull out of the ground um, at, at a sort of cost effective rate before recycling becomes a necessity, which is great. Like I'm glad to see recycling, um, you know, especially for a lot of these, these rare earth metals become more, um, <clears throat> more, more common. Um, but part of the solution has to be making less. We have to produce fewer of these devices. And that's just not in the, the economic interests of a lot of these companies. I mean, Apple, you know, is essentially, if you, you, know, you look at where their profits come from, they're in the business of selling iPhones, right? That is the vast majority of their revenue. And I'm glad to see they're diversifying and getting into different kinds of services um, that might shift their incentives a little bit or, or take some of the pressure off the, the hardware end of their business. But that's what they're here to do. And we have to acknowledge that for what it is. They're not going to, uh, to, to sort of decide on their own um, to just, you know, um, have, have a worse quarter than they did last year and sell fewer phones. There's going to have to be some intervention, I think, if we want to, we want to shift their um, behavior. I totally agree with this. And if you've followed any of the kind of, any of the, the cultural reporting that has come out of um, certain types of trash heaps and garbage heaps and the scavenger communities that live on them and live off of them. I feel like that is deeply like the future of like basically us running out of rare earth minerals to take out of the ground and us like going into kind of this this future of like kind of remining them out of our trash. Um, and did, 
just to mention briefly, like Dell apparently has like launched some new recycling mission. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that that's like progressive or hopeful? Um, so I, I did see that announcement from Dell and look, lots of companies are investing more in recycling, right? Apple's got their fancy robot, the Daisy, and I forget the name of the other one. And, you know, they, they are spending money to make this stuff happen. I think they do it for two reasons. One is it's good PR, you know, you're going to, you're going to put out your, you know, your annual environmental report and you want to be able to say you're doing something positive. Um, on the other hand, I do think there are increasingly going to be, you know, uh, economic incentives for companies to invest more in recycling. Um, they simply aren't going to be able to produce the number of devices that they are now relying on the sort of same old extractive techniques uh, that they have before. Right? I mean, not to be too grim about it, but like there are only so many kids you can kill in copper mines uh, before um, you start to see the value of recycling from the devices that people have have cast off. So I think it's good that companies are doing this. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to say they should like stop wasting their time, but I don't think by itself that, you know, any new recycling um, uh, initiative is, is going to like actually solve this problem on its own. We need devices that last longer. I mean, the auto industry is doing a really great job. Um, you know, the, the average car on the in the United States is something it's like 16 years old or something uh, like incredible. Cars are lasting longer uh, than they have in decades. And that's because there's robust competition. Right. There's a bunch of different car makers out there and they know that consumers for a big purchase care about repairability. They care about durability. They care about resale value. If we had that same set of incentives in place when it came to laptops and smartphones, uh, look, these, these, the people who design for these companies are incredibly good at what they do. And if the incentives were there, they could build something that lasts. Um, we just need to, to set up a system that, that sort of guides them in that direction. Yeah, totally. Tom McGuckin, the floor is yours. Uh, you know, this question relates to Kate too, because she's the legal expert. Um, well, Aaron's a law professor too, so. Oh, okay, both of you. All right. Well, you know, years ago there were um, antitrust laws that were sort of enforced. I don't know if they were ever enforced. And there was a thing called tying arrangements, okay, where you took a, something like an auto part and be, you were a monopoly in the auto market and then you extended your monopoly into the repair business, okay? Now, I don't see anybody enforcing that at all anymore. But uh, I, I really wanted to get back to the European thing on power cords, because that's what I asked my question on, was I read somewhere that um, Europe is going to require Apple to use a seaport power cord. In other words, not their little flat tongue uh, device, but the standard seaport. And I noticed that Ben even got into this on his Twitter account with a guy named Max Boot, okay, about promoting, uh, you know, just one standard for uh, cords. You know, I drown in cords. I have a million cords everywhere, you know. I mean, it's an argument with my wife every day on where the hell is the charger, all right. It's, it's, it's this sort of thing. So Europe sort of took a step in that direction where they're saying, okay, we want everybody to standardize on one cord. What do you think of that? Now, Apple came back and said, oh, well, they're stifling innovation. That's the most standard argument I've heard for a million years. Okay, but uh, I'm just wondering what you think of that European regulation. Well, Those are go. both great, great points. So on the antitrust point, I totally, I totally hear you. So there was a case decided in, I don't know, the mid to late 1980s against Eastman Kodak. Um, that dealt with precisely this issue in the tying space, right? So there, there the claim was um, Kodak, this is this dealt with photocopiers. They didn't want independent service providers to be repairing their copy machines. And so they cut off access to replacement parts. And the only way to get the parts you needed was to pay for Kodak's repair services. Um, and Kodak lost that case, right? And that's um, that's, I think, a really important precedent in this space when it comes to this kind of tie-in arrangement. And 
to be honest with you, when I read Apple's announcement today, that's the first thing I thought of, right? Sure, they're reacting to the possibility of state level legislation. The other thing they're reacting to is there's new management at the FTC. Um, and I think there is an appetite for much more aggressive antitrust enforcement. Um, you know, the FTC put out this nixing the fix report after studying this issue for a couple of years. They care about this issue. They're paying attention to this issue. And, you know, I think Apple probably wisely doesn't want to be involved in two antitrust cases at once. Um, and so this is a way of, of sidestepping that. To the European point, um, yeah, so the, the, the mandating of USB-C is, I think, a small step towards a kind of design mandate that doesn't deal with repairs specifically, but does deal with kind of the broader problems of, of, uh, of electronic waste uh, and the production of all of these, you know, additional cords, right? Why do we need, you know, why does Apple need to sell you a cord with every single device you have? If you already have USB-C, you're good. Um, there are other more aggressive steps that have been taken in Europe around repair already. So as part of the eco design directive, um, there are some mandates about the design of certain kinds of home appliances, white goods, um, you know, washing machines for, for your home that say things like the parts that are most likely to need to be replaced have to be removable and replaceable with everyday household tools, right? Your, you know, standard Phillips head or, or flathead screwdriver, as opposed to some, you know, uh, like obscure, hex, you know, like screwdriver or something. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to be able to replace those parts without doing any permanent damage to the machine. Um, and so we've seen Europe take more aggressive steps. There's talk of a second round of that eco design directive that would go so far. We haven't seen this in writing just yet, but might mandate something like user replaceable batteries for smartphones. Right. If you remember back to the like the uh, oh the flip phone days, you had yes, your, your Motorola Razor. And, you know, like with your thumb, you can pop off the, the back of that thing, replace the battery. Europe might do that. And if it does, Apple's not going to design, you know, a battery or a, an iPhone for the U.S. that's different than the one it, it sells in Europe. Yeah, um, and so, you know, thing. we might kind of see that. Exactly. Right. Right. So I'm hopeful that that Europe is is probably going to be ahead of the United States in in kind of these. Um, direct interventions in the design process. I don't know how well that would go over here, but I think I think the Europeans are um, are, are clearly more more comfortable taking those sorts of steps. Yeah, Ray, the floor hey. is yours. All right. So, if manufacturers are required to provide repair parts uh, through you know right to repair rate uh, you know regulation, how do you define how small of a part they have to provide? So if auto manufacturers only provided a new engine every time that you had a bad spark plug, you know, that would not be meaningful repair. So likewise, if I, Apple will offer you a $1,500 motherboard every time you have a problem with a three cent fuse or they could offer you an chip. electron. <laughs> right. You know. so, so that it'll, might be a little it'll bit fix too something far somewhere. on the uh, small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So where do you draw that line and how do you actually make meaningful regulations so people don't just, you know, manufacturers don't just make sort of token efforts saying, you know, sure, here, you can get a $1,500 part to fix your $2,000 laptop. What a you great know. question. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not an easy answer, right? Um, exactly how we define components is going to depend at least in part on the design of the product, right? So you open up a lot of, you know, consumer electronic devices and, you know, every chip is on the same board, right? Um, and so if one goes bad, you got to replace three or four or five different, um, what we might think of functionally as separate components, but the way that they're built, you know, they, they function as a single part. Right. So one way to, to address this question is to look at the ways that these devices are designed and assembled to determine what counts as a, as a part. The other thing that you could do, and I will point out, like th this, this is not defined in the statutes with probably as much as much specificity as we might like to see uh, in practice. But the other thing you can look at is sort of 
existing behavior and practices within an industry, right? Is this a component that you sell to your own dealers or to your authorized repair partners as a standalone piece? And if so, you've got to make it available to, to everyone else. The right to repair laws that have been introduced in states, by the way, are modeled after a Massachusetts law that was passed, I think in 2011, that was specific to the automotive industry. Uh, and did mandate these kinds of parts be made available. And then it became sort of through a um, private agreement between kind of trade associations became the de facto law throughout the United States. And the auto industries figured it out. Um, they, they know what counts as a part, um, largely I think through these kinds of existing relationships. If you sell something to the dealer, you gotta sell it to me too. Um, and so that disciplines the the gaming in some ways, but I totally agree with you that um, that's that's an issue that's going to have to be sorted out. I think once these rules are you know hopefully in place. Um, Doctor Jamie, you have the last question. If you can combine them because we're about to run out of time, I was I really liked your kind of your question about your service book um, and the a question of improvement counting as repair, and then the question um about um stallman oh okay so um i have a surface book uh, a surface book too it has eight gigabytes of memory i desperately need 16. the thing is sealed i can't i can't put in this cheap memory um so that that that's one question about extending right of repair to right of substitution improvement. Yeah. of improvement and uh this the second one was uh, software, when it was closed source, was essentially the same problem. You didn't have a right to repair. Stallman introduced the GPL, which basically gave a right of repair for software. And as, as these devices became essentially dongles to software, hardware as a dongle rather than hardware as a device, um, you, you, you seem to have the same issue of how do you get, how do you get the equivalent of a GPL? How do you once Apple no longer supports uh, supports an iPhone 6 in many ways, how do I get a different service provider to run an iPhone? Yeah, great question. Yeah, those 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 are those are both um, those are both great points. So you know when you, when you talk about wanting to upgrade the the memory in a device, um, you know. I, I think that the kinds of interventions that, that we've been discussing with respect to repair will kind of by their very nature make that sort of upgrade process a lot easier for consumers, right? You know, if your Surface Pro uh, is, um, you know, designed in a way that makes it easier to open up, right? If it's not welded closed, um, you know, it, 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 or, you know, instead it's actually like, uh, enclosed with screws, right? That makes it easier to open the thing up and make some changes to it. Whether you're replacing RAM that has gone bad or you're upgrading to something bigger, um, I think you can you can take advantage of those kinds of design changes, the kinds of parts availability that we're that we're talking about here. Even though I think you could say that goes beyond repair in kind of the narrow sense of the word, and and I think you know you're. Um, your analogy to the GPL is, is, is really thoughtful in the sense that part of what we are trying to achieve here is, you know, like in a very literal sense, right? To open these devices up so that we can understand how they work so that we can make changes that, that sort of suit consumers needs. And in many cases, that's just going to be restoring functionality that was lost for one reason or another. In other cases, it might require something that goes that goes beyond that, right? What do we do when a company decides it's no longer going to support a particular device? Um, I've, I've written elsewhere about the, the, the need and the desirability of a, of a system um, that allows people some greater freedom to, to, to use the software and services of, of their choice. So I think it goes beyond repair, but it's, it's absolutely kind of consistent with the, the kind of ethos of, of the repair movement. We're going to leave it there. Uh, Aaron, I've been looking forward to this conversation since you agreed to come on. I, I'm not saying that. I really like, I'm a huge fan of your work and I, we haven't gotten to talk enough because I haven't been in the property world for a while. Um, in terms of scholarship, but um, 
I'm going back that way. I'm doing a huge piece on Airbnb. Let's talk more. And I'm just like really excited to like, I'm really excited to read this book. Um, I started it and I'm gonna, I, I hate to say this. I really like to read it in like dead wood tree. So like, <laughs> like I'm, gonna, I'm hopefully, so, I'm like looking forward to getting come it. But also come on again soon because when you agreed to come on, that's when Apple capitulated and made this <laughs> announcement. So who knows what would happen if in you uh, if you if you did it again? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, very true. You yeah, know, Amazon, Amazon would agree to you know let us repair their trucks when they're stranded in our driveways. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's do this every week, and we'll we'll solve all the problems real quick. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> We will be hey, thank back. Thank you both so much. This was great. Yeah. Thank, thanks to you. We will be back tomorrow. Uh, I, it's a special announcement, people. We will be playing Where's the Lie with none other than Shane Harris um, and uh, intelligence reporter for the Washington Post. He will spin out a yarn. We will try to figure out if it's true. And that'll be 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? We can't have fun anymore, but we can have Phillips head screwdrivers and hexagonal screwdrivers, flathead screwdrivers, and also glue dissolvents. And, you know, and when we get frustrated at all, we can have a hammer. So until we get the bang, right to repair. Bang. <laughs> it was great to see you, Aaron. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm going to drop your link Thanks. one more time. There you go. To anyone who wants to buy his book. Talk to you soon.